The saddest thing about Bernie Madoff is he could have been successful and was successful. His business that was honest was worth $3 billion at peak, and he lacked the moral fiber and courage to stay out of trouble. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm very, very happy to be with you today, wherever you may be. I hope you're staying safe and as healthy as you can be. I know we're into uh, what looks to be the second wave of the COVID uh, epidemic, certainly in the US and in many parts of Europe. So please stay as safe as you can. On this episode of the SIDCast, hopefully we'll be able to distract you a little bit from many things that are going on all around us and have a great conversation that will be informative and will be engaging as well. I've known Jim Campbell, my guest today on the SIDCast, for a bunch of years. He's a very successful businessman who, uh, for some time now, has had a syndicated radio show on business. Now, I know that a radio show on business might not sound like the most interesting thing you've ever heard of, but Jim is really this special type of character, this special type of person who's just great at it. He's got the voice, as you're going to hear. And as a podcaster, I really know how important it is to have that voice. And uh, he also has what I think are some of the most important attributes of an excellent interviewer. At the top of the list, I would put curiosity. Now, I'm hoping, dear listeners of the SIDCast, that you're thinking, hey, Sid, that sounds a lot like you. You're curious. Well, Let me pause a little bit, actually, here in my introduction of Jim Campbell to talk about interviewing a little bit and about a little bit about what I've learned since I started doing the SIDCast some 75 episodes ago. And this is really, really uh, interesting to me. Of course, that's not much of a surprise, but I've been interviewed hundreds of times myself, whether in the business press or any press, really. And even in the old days when I used to have my list of the worst CEOs of the year, that was quite a project in. I know it never made me any friends, to be honest. It was an outgrowth of my work around Why Smart Executives Fail, a book that I uh, wrote that was a bestseller. But in any event, there were lots and lots of great interviewers that are out there that I've had a chance to talk to. And of course, some of you know them from Terry Gross to others. But in keeping my hat on about, you know, what goes wrong (laughs) and why people make mistakes, there are two common patterns I've noticed over the years that are kind of annoying, to be honest. And they're patterns that you see for interviewers that are not that great. Pattern number one, this happens when you go on to a business show, whether it's radio or television, and they ask you ahead of time for your talking points, you know, things you might want to say related to the original topic that asked them to invite you in the first place. And I get why they want those talking points. The producer needs to make sure the host knows what to expect. After all, a lot of these shows are live, and it's really pretty impressive how a host in a live show is able to kind of juggle things, make things work in real time, deal with whatever is going on. And that really brings me up to annoying pattern number one. And that's when the hosts start asking me questions that have absolutely nothing to do with my talking points and sometimes very little to do with the topic that brought me onto the show in the first place. Now, I'd like to think after all these years that I could answer pretty much any question. And all right, this is probably more true than not, but sometimes questions can come at you from left field about things you haven't thought about at all, things that you've got to think about super fast. 
after I means live TV, right? And my favorite example, and favorite is a word we should put in quotes because it wasn't all that fun. But my favorite example of this happened to me years ago when I was being interviewed on a live show about why smart executives fail, the book that I mentioned earlier. And it's a book that was about the underlying reasons why seemingly smart people do really dumb things. And most of my examples were business examples, but the host really out of the blue decided to ask me to comment on the Catholic Church and the various news reports on sexual abuse by priests. And I remember distinctly thinking in really a microsecond after he asked me this, and this is a question I really don't want to be talking about on live TV, but you have no choice when you're asked about it on the spot, unless you want to say, I'd rather not comment. But I've never said that in my entire career. I just kind of plow through and do the best I can. So I'm sure you're curious what I said in response to that question. And all I can remember today is that I spoke about what's right and wrong. And I spoke about morality. And then I quickly tried to segue into a more comfortable terrain. I didn't get any hate mail, so I must have done all right. Annoying pattern number two. I guess this is not really egregious, but it's just something that happens when an interviewer is not that experienced or the interviewer is, you know, is just not that curious or doesn't understand what the point of an interview is in the first place. I'm referring to people that ask question after question after question, clearly going off of a preset list of questions that has little or nothing to do with my previous answers. I call this check-the-box interviewing, an attempt to get through the interview set of questions that they prepared, but at the price of not really engaging with a guest. As a listener, I'm not really understanding who that guest is and who they are and what they're like and how they think, and I think that's important, and that someone just doesn't let their curiosity come through. In the same way that you know, good conversationalists do, right? That's what I like to think about in the SIDCast. Are we creating a good conversation, engaging conversation? One that, you know, if you go to a dinner party and you're seated next to someone that just asks good questions and wants to hear what you have to say and has something to say in response. And obviously I'm talking about pre-COVID dinner parties, but just something that's just, it's energizing, it's engaging, it's exciting. It's even better if you have friends that do this naturally. I mean, I say all this because it gets me really right back to my guest today on this episode of the SIDCast, Jim Campbell. He's really a master interviewer. I've enjoyed listening to his show over the years, and I've been on a show a couple of times myself. And the last time I thought, boy, he would be a fabulous guest for my podcast. It's funny, when I look back over my own podcast interview notes for this episode, there's hardly anything on there. Maybe I just knew that I could riff with Jim, that he was comfortable in the art of conversation, and that I knew that some of the things he's up to would just lead to a fascinating, really a fantastic conversation. So I'm not going to say too much about what we talked about. Suffice it to say that Donald Trump does come up, as does Bernie Madoff, and the juxtaposition of those two people, I suppose, was not a coincidence. Jim is writing a book on Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff is, of course, the guy that created this Ponzi scheme a few years ago that was really one of the biggest scams scams in the history of, of, of scams in the history of business. He essentially stole billions of dollars from investors. And Jim had unbelievable access to Bernie. He spent countless hours one-on-one with him exclusively. How does Bernie think? Does he think he did anything wrong? Did he feel bad for anything he did? And how did my guest Jim Campbell actually get to have this type of access with Bernie Madoff in the first place? I think you're really going to enjoy this episode of the SIDCast with Jim Campbell. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with my friend and a broadcaster of some renown in the world of business, Jim Campbell. Hey, Jim. How are you? And a Tuck graduate as well. Yeah, well, you always do mention that, and I appreciate that as well. You may have been a year or two before my time, I'm not sure, but you have your show or shows, really, in radio and business. How long have you been doing that? 2008. 
I went to the uh, broadcasting school in Connecticut called the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. I think one of only a couple in the country. The timing ended up being good because it was right around the crash of 08. And it was very hard to understand what was actually going on with this whole mortgage crisis, what were credit default swaps and all that kind of stuff. Right. That was part of the reason I did it. So um, it was 08. And then after that, I worked at WGCH, the Greenwich Station as well, where I still do as assistant news director and then syndicated the business show. And then a couple of years ago, the crime show, although some will say business and crime are the same thing. As we will discuss, to be sure. Tell us a little bit about your life before the radio business. I grew up in the Midwest in a suburb of Chicago and when then went to school essentially out east from prep school at show to undergrad at Tufts. And then I went right to business school, which really isn't done anymore. I think 15% of our class did. And I was the class of 79. So that's, I think, way before your time. I started in 1994. So when I got out of business school, I went to IBM in uh, White Plains. I was there for several years and then went to Dean Witter, which became part of Morgan Stanley. And then I went to KPMG Consulting, which is a systems integration business in the big four. So I had a bunch of corporate experiences. And in between there, I had some entrepreneurial stuff. And then added the radio on around 2008, as I said. Why radio? Is that something you always had as a hobby or an interest or just? No, I owned a vending business in partnership with the Red Cross, where they got a piece of it as a charitable donation. So I was out on the road a lot if I would visit customers or get new customers or whatever. And I hear this talk radio stuff in the car. And it was so incendiary, so polarizing. So right or left wing, and it kind of annoyed me, and I and I felt there was just like a growing chasm in the country and whatever, and so I got interested from that perspective of seeing if there was something you could do that might help people uh, understand issues better that wasn't biased to begin with, that was fact-based, that was deeper dived in some of the superficial stuff that was going on. I had some interest in politics, right, and I ran for state rep for the nomination in Greenwich. And I got quickly disillusioned by the political process. And I see the whole political system is somewhat dysfunctional now. And radio suddenly reared itself as something that I could be free to do pretty much what I wanted, as well as kind of fill this gap I thought that was out there for unbiased, nonpartisan, information-driven, fact-driven, kind of what I see teaching, but in a, um, I don't want to say showbiz, but more of an entertainment perspective. I had no real interest in radio or anything growing up and even at prep school. So that wasn't any driving force, although I got told all the time that I had a radio voice, whatever that is. I think that's true. I think everyone's going to hear that. My wife tells me I have a radio voice, but now when she listens to you and me together, she'll no longer say that. So thank you for that, Jim. Well, I'm also told I have a face for radio, so it evens out. There you go. It's interesting you talk about talk radio and how polarized it is. Well, it's only gotten worse since 2008. You know, we're in 2020. And then you talk about politics and your disillusionment at the state level in politics. Well, I think we've seen it only go downhill since then. What has happened that we've come into this situation now? In one sense, truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. Facts don't seem to matter. I've got a pretty strong opinion um, anti-Trump, and I can tell you whoever I've spoken to, no matter how passionate I am, no matter how much factual basis I have for it, I haven't changed one person's mind. It's as if people are in camps now and nobody is listening or willing to hear one side or the other. And I joke that America, not joke, but somewhat uh, seriously, the country sort of has a death wish right now. We're making a lot of bad decisions left and right, one after the other. And the country's sort of coming apart at a nervous breakdown. You know, you can see civil unrest that will only get worse over time. And the system is not working. 
And I think there's a lot of grievance about that on both sides of the equation, and no one's listening to each other, and Washington is paralyzed. You put all that together, I kind of wonder what we're doing. The coronavirus is going to go down as the most mismanaged crisis probably in my lifetime. Another example of why we don't seem to be able to do the right thing right now. This is about polarization, but it's such an extreme thing. Many people don't want to wear masks. Wearing a mask has become a political thing. And in the rest of the world, that, of course, is not the case. It's not that complicated, but yet it is a hot button. And there'll be people listening that won't like that. I even ask you this question. I think it's a bigger issue one layer back, which is how in the heck have we taken a public health crisis, perhaps the worst one since whatever 1918's flu epidemic, and made it political? It makes no sense to me. It should be science-driven. The science is pretty basic that wearing masks will help prevent pretty significantly the spread of it. And then if someone gets it, you isolate it, and then you trace people they were in contact. That seems one, two, three, very basic. And yet wearing a mask in some parts of the country has been equivalent with giving up freedom. It's not manly. It's not something that you know you should be considering. And part of that comes from leadership, the president, who for a long time wouldn't even put a mask on. And I'm just stunned that you would have a public health crisis that we've reached. This is another part of what I call this death wish. There's no logic that a health issue should ever be politicized. No, there isn't. And you mentioned, uh, obviously, you're talking about President Trump. I think recently on your own show, you had, was it a psychologist or a psychiatrist talking about Trump? Could you share a little bit about kind of what came out of that conversation? I've interviewed several of them. And it ranges from what has been diagnosed by these folks who obviously haven't spent time with Trump personally as malignant narcissism, which is I don't think anybody will disagree that narcissism is a core part of his personality. But it comes with antisocial personality, which is essentially a nice word for sociopath. It comes with a strong sense of paranoia. And he does see conspiracies everywhere. John Bolton told me this, too, who worked for him directly, that he sees conspiracies under rocks. And the final thing is sadism slash cruelty. That level of diagnosis would extend to someone like Hitler on the extreme. Of course, Mary Trump, who went to undergraduate where I went to Tufts, feels that Trump grew up eight years younger than his brother, who the feeling was, and what from Don's perspective, his father didn't feel he was cut out for the business, and the guy essentially developed a drinking problem and died. And I think President Trump gets up every morning and says that unless I dominate everything, I'm going to die. And everything is a war. Dan McAdams is the guy from Northwestern that was on. He calls it the episodic man, that literally every single day that President Trump starts over again, which is why people say he lies all the time. It's not that he lies in his mind. It's that every day you're in the boxing ring, you're starting over. What I said yesterday doesn't matter with what I said today and what I say tomorrow won't matter with what I said yesterday. So you put all that together and uh, he has, let's put it this way, an interesting psychological profile. John Bolton, who you recently uh, interviewed in your show, and you've had other people as well, I think, that have been in President Trump's circle or related to that. And the question really is, and I'm not sure whether you asked this question directly to Bolton, but why does it seem like this cast of characters, all extremely accomplished, Tillerson and General Madison, why do they not seem to be able to manage this situation? Or even once they leave to speak out you know, in any significant way. And this has come up more recently with the reports that President Trump 
actually called soldiers and other vets or military people, you know, losers, which is beyond unbelievable and unconscionable. And then you have generals that apparently were the ones that heard this and they're not speaking up. And Bolton was the same way, as you well know, with the whole impeachment trial. He had nothing to say during the impeachment and he kept it for later when it would have been more relevant. Do you have any insight in from their point of view why it is that they've operated in this way, all the president's men? I asked Bolton directly, you were the closest, highest level aide to him. If you would come out during the impeachment process, it might have been decisive. And he said, wouldn't have been that he thought the Democrats practiced impeachment malpractice and that he refused to be a part of that because of that reason. That's what he says. Meanwhile, he says that Trump is an existential threat. He cannot be, remain as president. So he's pretty adamant on that side of the equation. As to why the generals don't speak out, I think they have a big sense of honor, which Trump exploits, because he knows that they're not likely to come back. Now, you can say they have a duty to it. I think they do. On the other hand, if you look at it from Trump's perspective, these guys weren't letting me be Trump. They thought they had to babysit me and tell me what to do, and even more important, stop him from doing stuff that they didn't agree with, which, by the way, Bolton did a lot of, which is to try to make sure that some of what Trump wanted didn't happen. So do you let Trump be Trump or do you know that that's a dangerous uh, proposition? I'd like to think, and I would throw Congress in here, I am disgusted by the fact that nobody on the Republican side of Congress speaks out at outrageous things that he says. I grew up in a Republican household and people like Senator Percy in my hometown or Weicker or um, Hatfield or Jacob Javits, all these guys had a lot of independent integrity, John McCain more recently. And nobody speaks. Nobody. They're all scared of him. They all know behind the scenes that he does not know what he's doing. And I'm just talking, forget ideology or whatever. He's not competent for the job. He doesn't know how to organize himself, organize the White House. He doesn't read. And um, he's just not up to the job. And I don't see anybody in Washington with the courage to say that. The typical answer to what you just said is, well, he controls the base and we need the base to be elected. And I don't want a primary uh, contender. That's the right of me, which is, of course, just all about getting elected and getting reelected. But that's kind of what they do. It's a full time job of getting elected and reelected. The other thing is they're scared of him because he'll give you a name and he'll be out tweeting your name and he'll, he'll basically be humiliating you. I remember, um, was it a decade, not a decade, two decades ago or three decades ago, there was this discussion about term limits. Do you remember? There was a lot of energy around it. And I was thinking, is it possible that people would vote, meaning Congress, uh, men and women, would vote for something that would put them out of a job? Are we nuts that we think that might happen? But that was actually a big reform movement at that time. It's hard not to see some benefit to it when it's clearly take Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's strategy is re-election for himself and, and to keep the Republican majority, regardless of any culpability in the impeachment or in any issue. So if your focus is only on getting reelected, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions, too, a lot of bad policy. Yeah. Do you know these guys, Sid, if you are in the House, you are expected to spend four hours a day across the street making phone calls, raising money for re-election. That's more time than they have for house business during the day. And as you know, they're only there part of the week. Right. That's incredible, really. I know you also recently had Paul Krugman as a guest, the Nobel Prize winner 
And the economist that writes for the New York Times is extremely well around. I had a chance to meet him a couple of years ago. We were both giving uh, speeches in Korea of all places, South Korea, I might add. He was just so uh, interesting, but also incredibly outspoken. And I'd like you to share a little bit about your conversation with him, because he's, he's not only a great thinker, but he doesn't hold back at all and can usually bring the chops behind it to support what he says. Yeah, you know, I think, too, he has a real sense of one of the big problems in this country, which is income inequality, and that policies in place are not, you know, helping a lot of folks that need help. He's complaining right now that the next stimulus, the so-called skinny stimulus, stimulus is not going to reach the people that need it. You know, my thing about Paul, and, I, and more and more I see this, is the people that are never Trumpers are talking to each other. And that's who all the who, you know, it's a circle. Krugman may, is one of the most articulate and brilliant, because he's got all the um, economic background, in making the case for all these major issues and the problems that are going on right now. But I'd question whether he has impact on people who aren't already in that sort of elite circle. I don't know. Interestingly, um, I don't know how you found him. He's not as easy to warm up. He's an academic nerd is what he is. And being in the world of academia, I live with that species every day and I love them. <laughs> but yeah, he's not exactly the, the most standard or classic cocktail chatter, tell an anecdote or two. But once he gets going, he doesn't stop. And as I said, it's really backed up by a lot of very careful. He really must want to do these interviews right now because I couldn't interview him for a big chunk while I was working on the book. And his guy must have asked me like 15 times. And, you know, when we finally got him on, he was generous with his time and everything. And he's just a brilliant guy. I read his stuff every his op-ed, which is whatever it is, two days a week or one day a week, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. 2008 and now it's 2020. It's 12 years and you have a weekly show. So you have a lot of people you've interviewed. I've only been doing this podcast for, well, not quite two years, a year and a half. And I'm loving it. Almost 600 interviews. 600. That's fantastic. So this is a kind of a tough question about some of your favorites. And then, of course, I'll ask you the opposite. But just whatever comes to mind over the years, even if it goes back a little bit. And by the way, while we're talking about politics and business, you're the people you talk to, you interview, really runs the gamut. There are a lot of people in the world of sports. I've been on your show a couple of times for books or research that I've done. You have a really wide variety of people, as I like to do as well. You know, who are, who are some of your favorites? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about a couple of them and why you really enjoy them. I'll tell you, one of the ones that I felt the best about, and he's brilliant, I got the first interview with Elliot Spitzer after he resigned from the governorship of New York about a month maybe a little bit more, actually, uh, after he gave me a full hour. He is a brilliant guy. He could have been, without any doubt in my mind, the first Jewish president uh, of the United States if he hadn't blown it. He was a lot of fun. Some of the crime shows, I got the only interview besides 60 Minutes that Dennis Kozlowski, who you'll remember, yes. was the CEO of Tyco and one time considered the Jack Welch of his era in, from a growth perspective. Or I think one of two that cried on my show because I'm not Barbara Walters, apparently. His uh, Rumi Khan was a in the insider trading ring with Raj Rajaratnam, which you'll remember was the biggest insider trading scandal in Wall Street history. She actually cried, didn't think she was going to get a second chance in life, although she'd already had a second chance because after the FBI gave her some immunity, she continued to do a little cheating on the side there. So Was that the scandal that involved McKinsey and Goldman Sachs? Is that the one or is that something? Yes, else? it did. Raj Rajaratan, uh, the former chairman of McKinsey, he was on the board of Goldman Sachs. That's how it happened. Goldman was bailed out by Buffett, if you'll remember, for $5 billion. The chairman of uh, Rajat Gupta was the chairman of American Express, walked out of a Goldman meeting, called Raj, and with 
literally like two minutes before the end of the close, told them of those stock market close that Goldman was going to get $5 billion, which was obviously going to drive the stock price way up. And he put an order in and made a chunk of money and they got caught. So this is something to talk about, because I know you have a lot of interest, not just because of the crime you know, interviews you do, but uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, your own book that you're working on. And for me, it's something I've always been interested in. I wrote a book called Why Smart Executives Fail back in 2003. Dennis Kozlowski, of course, was one of the uh, stars of that book. It included Enron, Tyco, WorldCom, all the winners from that era, among others. And you're mentioning you know, this example of, was he the CEO of McKinsey, uh, Gupta, or of some... When this happened, I, I think he was out of the job by then. I mean, he would retire. But, you know, McKinsey puts a huge emphasis on ethics. And so it was a huge black eye. Right. So the thing I'm thinking about is why would he do such a thing? Because at that point, he was worth, if not hundreds of millions, which is possible, certainly tens of millions, extremely wealthy, very well respected. I mean, you're the CEO of McKinsey. It doesn't get any more blue blood than that. You're on the board of Goldman Sachs. You are the toast of the town. You are in this kind of tight, small inner circle. And then he kind of does this. Anita Raghavan wrote the book on it, and I interviewed her on it. And she thinks that all that prestige and elite leadership you talked about is on one side. And on the other side is all this money that was being made by hedge fund guys. And Raja Ratnam was worth like $2 billion. And she thinks that he was very attracted because let's say he's worth, as you said, the tens of millions or even a hundred million. That ends up not looking like a huge amount versus a guy who's got $2 billion, who appears to have no skills other than trading and inside information. And that she thought she thought that he got a little, I don't know if greed is the word, or that envious. And she called her book The Billionaire's Apprentice because of that, that Raja was sort of going to be cash in a little bit with Raja Ratna. But it made no sense. He traded his entire reputation for not very much money. Do you remember what happened to him? Yeah, he got sent to prison. Raja Ratnam got sentenced to like 11 years. Gupta did not plea, take a plea or anything. He went through the whole deal, got convicted in all the appeals, and he was in jail in uh, Massachusetts, and I think he's out now. Wow. And the fact that he went all the way through means he thought he could beat the charge. Or his ego wouldn't... Uh, Exactly. Exactly. So you know what this reminds me or makes me think of also, which is especially in the first internet boom of 1999-2000, when the bubble burst, there were a bunch of um, executives, CEOs even from big companies that moved over to the dot-com world, gave up whatever they had to, because this was a chance to go from making, in those days, maybe two or three million as a CEO, to potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and you remember the CEO of Accenture was one of those examples. I'm trying to remember his name, Shaheen, maybe. He moved to Webvan. He became the CEO of Webvan. And he goes from Accenture. And Accenture is, you know, it doesn't get more reputable than that. Uh, but he wanted to run this small kind of scrappy grocery shopping that the grocery that was online grocery and didn't work it blew up which is actually kind of interesting given where we are today with you know instacart and everyone else ordering uh, groceries to go to your house but it was the same type of idea it wasn't enough just to be successful isn't that an interesting insight about people though right this social comparison we compare ourselves with others and for some people the people you compare yourself to are higher up on some metric you care about in this case 
wealth. The truth is, unless you're, I don't know, whether it's Bill Gates or the House of Saad in Saudi Arabia or Carlos Slim, you're not going to be that number one or the Waltons or whoever it is. And so you're always going to fail if that's your comparison. I've studied this in more of an academic sense, and many others have too, around social comparison. And it's fascinating to think about why people do this. And I came to the conclusion years ago that the easiest way to feel unsatisfied with your own accomplishments in life is to continually compare yourself to somebody else because there's always someone who is faster, who is smarter, who is taller, who is wealthier, etc. It seems like no one's immune to this. By the way, you could ask that same question about Madoff too. You know, he had a very successful Wall Street business with a great image and he mm. didn't have to even do a Ponzi scheme. So right, same. right. We'll talk about Bernie in a uh, in a moment. It is really interesting, this kind of social comparison thing that takes hold of people. And I don't know whether you ever uh, interviewed Michaela Schifrin, the skier. She's still in her 20s. She has the potential to be the greatest downhill skier in the history of the sport. She's already going to be listed in the probably the top 10 globally, if not top five. And she's close to being the greatest ever. Lindsey Vaughn, I think, after being in it for 15 years or longer, is still at the top for total number. Of, I mean, I'm not sure of this, but I think so for World Cup. But anyway, I remember Michaela Schifrin, who, by the way, she grew up uh, here in this uh, area before her talent was seen at the age of six. So they moved to Colorado, which tells you something. In one of the interviews, this is probably three years ago by now, could have been in the New York Times or somewhere. She said she didn't worry about anybody else. She really didn't. She didn't compare herself to anyone else. She compared herself to herself. And she knew this is the beauty of confidence, borderline arrogance. And I say arrogance in a positive sense. She knew that if she performed to her maximum ability, she was going to win. And it actually didn't matter what anyone else would do. And in fact, she couldn't control what anyone else could do. So why worry about it? It's such a powerful mindset, but yet so, so difficult to pull off, right? Because you're just, you got to be so within yourself. Um, you know, I was just thinking while you were talking, in your book, Super Bosses, you actually included Trump in it. And this would have been, I assume, before he was president. So you actually dissected those management weaknesses from the Trump organization when, of course, his reputation was total one of big success. Yeah, that came up before the election. Maybe even I finished writing before the primaries were done. But he just fit the personality of the anti-super boss, the opposite. And he was famous, even very famous, even then. If he's ever listens to this, he'd be very happy to hear that part. But yeah, so Michaela Schifrin just believing in herself. And then I don't know whether you saw the ESPN slash Netflix series on Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, uh, also really, really well done. And Michael Jordan decided that if he was going to win, he was going to win. And for, you know, he had his two years, two and a half years off to play baseball, his little hobby. But for the three years and then the other three years, so for a six-year period of time, when he won six championships... He was not going to lose. There was nothing anyone could possibly do. And he came close. There's some pretty talented people. Reggie Miller is another superstar, you know, and uh, Charles Barkley. He ended up besting both of them and they didn't lack for confidence either. But I just, I've always found it interesting to be in the mindset of professional athletes at the highest level and then others in other walks of life to think about how they do this and try to capture those lessons, not just for people in business or really in any other area. And you've had people in the world of sports as well, you know, probably a lot of them over 
over the years on your show. I'm curious what your take is from the sports world and what the lessons are from the world of sports. Not necessarily what I'm talking about. It could be. could be something else as it relates to the wider world. Today, talk about analytics everywhere, right? This is the post-moneyball world where you know we're always talking about these issues and they have become central to business operations as well. But what do you think about? The angle that I, that I like that, that I tend to is because I've always been interested by this is coaches, the top-level coaches, because a top-level coach can take an organization that is not winning and make it winning. And it doesn't matter where it is, what it is, that you can do it over and over. Bill Parcells is a good example. I've done a show on him. John Wooden, Bill Belichick, all these guys, we even Coach Knight did one. All of these guys understand the dynamics of building a winning organization. And you look at the average, say, NFL franchise, right? 20 of them never figure that out. Can't do it. Turnover coaches. The most successful organizations you see have had only a few coaches in 20, 30 years. And then you see the, co- the ones that have had eight coaches in the last nine years. And it just intrigues you because it should be something that should be uh, able to be figured out uh, pretty easily. And John Wooden is probably the number one guy. He came up in an era when they, you didn't, the money wasn't there. He actually used to sweep the floor before practice at the UCLA gym. He didn't travel to recruit. He just knew how to motivate and build teams. And building a team to me is also one of the most fascinating things in the world where you supplement your ego for the benefit of a team and you learn how to endure and how to win. And anywhere that I see a good coach able to do that, I get totally intrigued by it. And of course, a good CEO does a similar type of thing, as you know, from your, you know, your research. Right. That's a great point. John Wooden, of course, is, was a longtime head coach for UCLA Bruins in basketball. And what did he, how many championships, NCAA championships did he win in a row? Is he won nine, or, out right? of, nine out of nine. ten. Nine out of 10, which is, you know, that's not going to be matched by anyone. And also, as you're talking about these great coaches, I think of Bill Walsh, San Francisco 49ers. We did a show on Bill Walsh, too. His biographer and John Wooden's was very close with him. John Wooden's, in fact, was with the family when he was dying. He was Mm. sending me uh, texts as he was uh, dying. Bill Walsh is another guy. And Bill Walsh is an interesting character, too, because he had a real tough time. First of all, he's the innovator in NFL football. All these West Coast offenses, all the current offense, offenses all come out of his tree. But he didn't manage stress well. His, he had some behavior issues and drinking and stuff like that. So, And he's human, in other words. Yeah. But, uh, utterly brilliant. It took him a long time to get his chance. You know, a lot of, a lot of these coaches get chances. At, like Joe Judge, the Giants' new coach, he's 38 years old. Walsh kept getting passed over. It was very tough on him, high sense of frustration. And then, look, he's, he is the innovative coach of this generation. I profiled him, one of the super bosses. And so I learned a lot about him and talked to some of his protégés. And in fact, you're exactly right as a, as an innovator. He had a chip on his shoulder because he was passed by to be a head coach. Was that for the Browns or Cincinnati Bengals? I think it was. And then his, his coaching tree, the number of his protégés that ended up winning the Super Bowl or appearing in the Super Bowl greatly dwarfs everyone else, including Bill Parcells. But, you know, he was he was human. And I guess that's true for... Of course, that's true for everyone, goes without saying. But it's true for all of the super boss leaders that I looked at, you know, the Ralph Lawrence of the world and Larry Ellison. And they got their habits and they're not perfect people, but they sure knew how to build, as you say, you know, build a team. You know, the NFL season has just recently started. And I think about how's Bill Belichick going to do without his partner of 20 years, Tom Brady. But the bigger question is, how's Tom Brady going to do without his partner? Of course, it's not a fair test because Tom Brady's uh, 40 three years old. And so 
if he stumbles in Tampa Bay, is it because he's 43 or is it because he doesn't have Bill Belichick and maybe it's going to be a little bit of both? Bill Belichick, I think it's a more interesting case. I mean, Cam Newton is gigantically talented. And so it's not like there may not be a drop off in talent. In fact, it might be an improvement given the age difference. I, I don't think anyone would have said that necessarily, you know, eight years ago, but uh, I think it's fair to say now. So we don't really get these perfect tests in the real world to try to kind of decipher what's going on, but there'll be enough there to kind of have some good debate about that. I'm pretty excited about seeing what's going to happen, especially with Belichick and, and Brady. And it also reminds me, you know, I mentioned Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan went back to the Wizards. He unretired for the second time and went to play for the Washington Wizards. And that round didn't work out so well. Some people don't want to quit. Some people don't want to retire. So it raises the question of how important Phil Jackson was, you know, because, you know, mm -hmm. is Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson without Michael Jordan, will he end up? Yeah, he was. He had magic, though, out there. But it's an interesting thing. It's the same way I feel about you look at the New York Jets. They have nothing but losing coaching records. It's been a franchise that never seems to get their act together, but Parcells won there. You know, that's a really great point. It was Joe Namath and it was Bill Parcells and there were a few years in between those guys. And of course, one was a coach and one, one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. One last thing about Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan. When you see this Netflix series, ESPN series on, yeah, on The Last right. Dance, you discover, if you didn't know, if you're a casual sports fan or didn't really pay as much attention or didn't remember. Michael Jordan was there for three or four years before he won. And he was winning all kinds of personal awards for you know, scoring and uh, you name it, he was winning it. First team all-star, but he didn't win the championship. And the biggest difference was probably Scottie Pippen, who finally, you know, he was drafted a couple of years after, and then he, he raised his game and Phil Jackson. And so, yeah, it takes takes a village, even when you have this incredible talent of a Michael Jordan. And, you know, and don't have, you think Phil Phil had to convince him that you need to sacrifice your statistics for us to win? Which is uh, quite a thing to do, but he did it. He did it. Let's talk about Bernie Madoff. I mean, unbelievable story. You somehow have gotten this unbelievable access. So first of all, tell us, how is it you got to spend all this time with Bernie Madoff in prison? It's all total serendipity. I was doing a show interviewing Laurie Sandell, who wrote a book that Andrew Madoff and his um, partner had cooperated with, and they'd forced Ruth to cooperate. She didn't really want to do it. The night before the show, Laurie Sandell says, um, I'll hook you up with Andrew if you want to ask him some questions uh, to get ready for the interview. And I said, geez, that's unbelievable. It was all off the record because at that point, he's being sued by the, the trustee trying to get back Madoff money and you know one of the most hated people in the world. And I found him instantly very open. He answered every question. I, you know, I, one of the first things I said was, you know, you, you got $4 million, $3 million for a co-op in New York City from your dad months before this ended. You know that's dirty money. Shouldn't you be giving that back? He said, absolutely. And the only reason I haven't yet is the trustee wants every dime I have. And so we have to go through that. So anyway, I said, well, you know, I haven't found any evidence yet that you were involved. And Diana Enriquez, who wrote the first book on it, Wizard of Lies for the for New York Times, had she had the same conclusion. So I told him, I said, I haven't seen that. And he said, well, your show's live. I'm going to listen to it to see if you really do say that. And he listened. It was live. And I did say that. So then, by coincidence, he says his mother's moving to Greenwich from Florida. And obviously knew nobody. And I said, well, you know, Andy, if you want me to have lunch with her, uh, I will. He set the lunch up. We sat down and Ruth and I hit it off almost instantly up until when we're leaving. I asked her if we could hit, take a picture together. She turned to me and she goes, you're wired, aren't you? 
Ah, that's <laughs> funny. It's funny. So anyway, she then set me up with Bernie. What was Ruth like? Tell us that first. What was she like? First of all, she was 70-something then when we started, and a very attractive, diminutive, Queen's accent woman. She was totally crushed. She valued her integrity and, and was just destroyed. The most, one of the most resilient but toughest people I've ever met because, as you know, she had a son commit suicide, a son die slow motion from cancer, a husband. She was with him since they were 13 years old. Wow, um, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, yeah worshipped worship him. It was devastating. She Interestingly, she's very private. She told me she was never going to talk to another media person. She had uh, no interest. She wouldn't do it. But she supported me doing the books. She supported me connecting with Bernie and trying to get Bernie to go with me. And Bernie said that he, he the reason he was going to talk to me was he thought that I was going to could help clear up the real story. And because Andrew and Ruth recommended it. Meanwhile, Andrew was not speaking with him and never said another word after turning him in instantly. But Bernie uh, said, if, if Andrew likes you, you know, I, I like you. Ruth and I um, had a um, you know pretty close relationship. She, uh, we met for lunch every few months. She got so she confided in me. She got so she told me that I was helping her with her depression. We had lunch right after Andrew's funeral. So that it was the first time that she'd smiled since then. And then as soon as I got the contract, she decided she was did not ever want to speak again and that she wanted to remain the rest of her life in privacy. And so I have not spoken to her in a year and a half. Did she feel betrayed in some way that you got this contract to interview and, and write a no, book no, about Bernie? No, she was in totally in favor of it mm -hmm. because at one point the prison warden out of the blue said that uh, I was a security risk talking to Bernie and us going back and forth and he cut me off, right? And Bernie got told Ruth that that had happened because I didn't get the whole story and that she, so she did everything she could to get us back up. And back online and everything. I don't know at the end if she felt that, well, first off, obviously, you know, when I write about the truth, it's not actually going to be uh, making Bernie look any better than he had kind of anticipated that I would be able to do. They're also trying to get him out on the, that criminal reform act that uh, Trump passed called First Step or whatever it is. And so he's appealed to get out. So obviously not wanting a lot of publicity, probably. I don't know. I think she's had some health issues and uh, she may feel betrayed when the book comes out. Did she know what her husband, Bernie Madoff, was doing? No, she, did not, she didn't understand it. She did not know about it. You'll see in the book, the first thing she said after Bernie confessed, which she told me, and I don't think anybody else ever, but she said, I asked, what did you say to him first? And she said, what's a Ponzi scheme? Oh, my goodness. So she, did not, she did not know. Now, is she as guileless as she came across to, to me? I would say no. She was interested. She was balancing that checking account, which was the, the famous 703 account, which is the digits of the JP Morgan account that all the money went through. She was balancing it up to a year before the thing goes. Now, not she would not have been able to decipher what was going on in it. $170 billion passed through it in the whole time. And she did not know anything about it. His ego would not have allowed him to say, I'm being successful and surviving only because i am become a criminal enterprise. It's a lot like Trump in some ways, actually, other than he's very private. How is it that Bernie Madoff thinks that you would be able to help him get off in some way or rehabilitate his name? Uh, does he think he didn't do what he did? Does he think he didn't do anything illegal? He was very open about the Ponzi scheme. 
and that he was guilty of that after he got caught, right? Every single thing else, whether it mattered or not, in terms of lying about it, he lied about it. You know, which means he was lying to himself, I'm, I'm sure, too. But he had answers for everything. So I think he felt that, you know, you, you could ask me the same question. Why did Trump talk to Bob Woodward? That made no sense, did it? I mean, Bob Woodward just takes presidents down. I think that he thought that he could bullshit me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this. but Yeah, you know, what you're saying is really resonating because I interviewed, again, for this book, Why Smart Executives Fail, over 200, almost 250 people. Many of them had done, not necessarily illegal, though a couple of them subsequently was illegal, but certainly unethical and definitely stupid. Some combination of that. Because uh, that, that book was about major failures in an era in global business. And why did they talk to me? And part of the answer is because they didn't think they did anything wrong. They, they had somehow been able to compartmentalize this. And I, I don't know that, you know, I would have been that they would have thought I would have been in a position to clear their name. I doubt that was the case, but they didn't think they did anything wrong. I had one CEO of a, a company, I can't remember his name now, but it was Oxford Health Systems. And he was a young guy and was one of the first New York state-based healthcare organizations. I mean, they may have been in Connecticut as well. And we spent half an hour talking about what went wrong and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. He just held his hand up and he kept going and going. And basically what he said is that there are seven reasons why the company went bankrupt and was sued, et cetera. There are seven reasons why this happened. The first reason is my CFO really wasn't that good. You see where we're going, right? And the second reason, New York regulators were out to get me. And the third reason was these doctors didn't understand how our system. And he went on and on. I think he believed it. That's what I think. I think he believed it. You look at look at Trump has six bankruptcies and I'm, he is absolutely convinced he's a successful businessman. It's the exact same thing. And you know, Bernie by doing this actually ended up doing damage because he had this whole story that he told me, which he really hasn't expressed a lot as to how he got himself into this Ponzi scheme. And there's a certain logic to it, right? And then you go back and do the whole investigation, and it's a complete lie. He'd actually been building the Ponzi scheme almost from the day that he built what was considered the cleanest market-making firm on Wall Street. I mean, he wouldn't accept any violation in that firm. These guys were ran that thing totally clean. How does the same individual build that and a completely criminal enterprise simultaneously? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. In other words, he, there wasn't this, oh, my God, I, you, know, you, know, you know, when you, you've lost a lot of money in a bet, you try and double down, and that's yes. a huge classic gambler's mistake. That's what he was kind of trying to sell. Does he feel uh, remorse for what he did? Genuine remorse? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's the same. Um, it's the same thing you'll see uh, people like Trump accused of, which is a total lack of empathy. I, I don't know if there was a lack of a moral foundation or what it, what trauma causes that to protect yourself to have no empathy. Now, what he what he would do is start off saying, "I feel just terrible. I don't, you know, my kids. I feel the worst of all." And then within seven seconds. These guys were greedy. They wanted money. They were relentless. I couldn't say no to them. And it, it never ends up being his fault. He feels a lot of bitterness about all the pressure that he was under to constantly deliver what he said that he could deliver that he was making up. These were investors you're talking about. He was talking about. His, yes, want- you were, yeah, you were saying when you talk about remorse, I'm, his individual investors, right? A lot of whom are what you would call middle class people at best. Um, they were not, you know, big, rich hedge fund guys. And he destroyed these folks' life savings. But he will say they lied to get in, or they were just greedy, 
or they they took they made all this money off me that they don't have to ever return. And uh, you know, once he got himself revving, there was no empathy. Yeah. What? Uh, so how did you manage that from in terms of the interview? So he would say these things, and clearly you could say. Yeah, but you're really being very narrow about this because you did it. You know, you're the one who did it. And, you know, knowing you, you probably said that in a variety of ways. But can you talk a little bit about the interview process? It's fascinating to talk to somebody like that and to try to get his story. It was amazing because we have 400 pages, you know, that went into communications by the time they were done. He would write me these handwritten um, six, seven single space line letters, uh, Mm -hmm. as well as the emails and all that stuff. And the total recall. And just detail and a lot of it, un, you know, untrue. I kept thinking this was like Nixon, you know, that Nixon was just driven to clear his name or driven to come, you know, to come back. And he was just pouring out his heart. It wasn't hard. And of course, I confronted him and, and he would accept any kind of abuse I gave him. Once I completed, you know, all this time with him and I tried to turn it into a book. Right. Obviously, I wasn't able to vet a lot of his stuff, right? Until I had a contract, right? Because it would have been a luxury to go out. So there's a lot of stuff that I found out, which provided the details for what I uncovered as false, that he didn't really ever have to answer to me because we were already beyond that stage. For instance, you know, he will always maintain to me that he never put a dime of the Ponzi scheme into his legitimate business. I was just talking about the market making business and that he never did that. And they uncovered, and I, most people don't even know this number. He snuck out of that J.P. Morgan account into the back door securitously of the firm that was two floors upstairs, the legitimate one, eight hundred million dollars to keep it afloat. Mm. And of course, I, you know, none of that, you know, I, I got a hundred percent denial that not a penny ever, you know, ever went in there. You know, eight hundred million is a lot of money to steal. Eight hundred million, yeah. Did he think he was fooling you and that? You, you you were a pawn and he was going to get this guy, this reporter. You know, I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I, I interviewed a Wall Street fraud expert, a woman, right? Mm-hmm. And I explained it to her, you know, what I was doing. And she said right away, you were his self-appointed guardian of reputation. She knows how these guys think, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why she was very convinced that I'm going to, in the book for the first time, say whether I think the boys are Ruth new, right? So I don't want to spoil the beans totally. But she was pretty convinced that the way these guys operate, he would not have told them. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about whatever the gray area and whatever the, you know, the issues are in the book itself. But she said that he was a classic sociopath, uh, yeah. which she put Trump in the same category, by the way, but she would not, she didn't really want to talk about that. Yeah. Was Bernie in your conversations with him, was he a likable person? Very likable. Charismatic in a low key sense. He doesn't really have charisma. Yeah. He's got his own sense of charm. He was likable. Now, you know, I'm dealing with all the victims too, right? And I have to say that, you know, they knew that I was going to be honest about it. So I appreciated the fact that, you know, I was associating with, you know, with Ruth and Bernie and Andrew Madoff and his partner, Catherine Hooper, who has great insights. Uh, you'll hear some pretty ugly stories in the book from her perspective. But in any event, the answer to that is he is a likable guy, even though it'd be a lot easier for me to try to tell you what a total jerk he is. Right. Right. And do you think he has a chance to get out of uh, get no. out of jail? No, I don't think he does. I don't see why the, anybody, of course, I can't predict the president, this president, but I can't see why anybody would want to go and offend all the folks that lost all that money for uh, no real reason. And the question is, you know, and I don't have the answer to this is how close is he to die? Uh, that's mm-hmm. obviously the case they're making. 
And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Did you talk about what he did in prison? How he spent his time? He seemed to be really up to date on the case and everything. He read all the transcripts. He had all the all that kind of stuff on. He got kind of a good reputation, apparently. I don't know why, but amongst the other prisoners, he was smart. I think he helped teach them some finance. He is a con artist and a control freak, and he's able to control his surroundings wherever he is. He completely controlled all the people that were in the legitimate and illegitimate side of his business. They never crossed over, but he knew exactly how to manipulate people totally honest and exactly who he could get to do dirty stuff. And it's really a fascinating stuff. He brooked no dissent, and yet he had very, very strong loyalty. Obviously, he paid people well, too, which helps buy loyalty. But but he had genuine loyalty of himself as well. Yeah, it's amazing. What makes people into these types of machines that do so many illegal, unethical, destroy so many people's lives? And, And some of the money, I mean, a lot of the money that he took, they were from charitable organizations that just were really doing important work. And how does somebody have the nerve to take that money and swindle that money? And it's not a defense of taking money from somebody who's worth $50 million and swindling some of that. That's not right either. But to take it from a, from a charitable organization that's doing good works, that's the thing I just can't, I can't get my head around that. Other By than- the way, what this was was an affinity crime. He destroyed Jewish charities and a lot of his network of investors were Jewish and it passed right through all of them. You know, it's considered heresy to within the Jewish community to try to rip somebody off of money because of, you know, a culture of being oppressed around the world for a thousand years, you have to be able to trust your brethren. And he literally decimated all the folks within his network. And this, you know, included his own family, his country club in Palm Beach that he belonged to and all the charities and whatnot. It was an affinity crime. And you know, the great, the interesting thing is that no one understood what he was really doing, right? The split strike conversion strategy. But the funny thing is within four minutes, you can understand that it's not possible to do what he said he was doing in under five minutes. And in fact, the whistleblowers did figure it out that quickly. And yet he did it. He, he's, this thing survived for over 40 years, which is unbelievable, by the way. Ponzi schemes, as you know, are designed to only be short term kind of deals. Right. And it could survive for that amount of time when within, as you just said, five minutes, somebody could, with any decent level of knowledge, can figure it out. It's because nobody asked any questions. They trusted him. They didn't understand it, even though it's a very basic strategy if you just explain it that way. But when you start throwing in uh, option collars and you know all that kind of stuff, index baskets, he was one of the first guys to use derivatives, right, to build his strategy. Most of his folks didn't understand it. The feeder funds, you know, which which their only job is due diligence, right? He co-opted them because he bribed them. He passed on all the fees the money manager normally would have accrued to them so they wouldn't ask questions. Yeah. So it's in their interest to keep it, keep that gravy train growing. This is kind of a classic move of a grifter, right? You entice other people by other people getting in on the deal. Therefore, they don't have the incentive to raise the alarm. It's a very, it's a classic, it's a it's classic, a classic example. But here's the interesting thing about Bernie now. Normally, the guy that sits there and runs the Ponzi scheme takes all the money. He makes all the money. He had co-conspirators, the top one of which made seven times the amount of money that Bernie did, $7 billion which is another you know, very strange thing that you would run a Ponzi scheme and that his ego was such that he felt the need to make somebody else much wealthier than himself. 
Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. That is really out there. And is that person, is that public information who that is? Yeah, it's Jeff Pickhauer. You'll see there were four people, what he called his big four with me. Basically, what happened here is a reverse Robin Hood. He took the money of uh, average middle income folks and siphoned it off to rich folks. Nice. And in his group, these four guys who did know, nobody knew it was a 100% a Ponzi scheme. But everybody knew there was a lot of, not everybody, but these folks knew there was stuff going on. They thought it was front running and things like that. Have there been consequences to those people, the big four? Yeah, um, Pickhauer had to give back seven billion bucks. Left his wife probably with only two billion. That's right. He, he drowned um, in he drowned in his swimming pool a year later. Is that right? Yes. Interesting. That's going to be in the movie for sure. So, Jim, what's the name of the book? It's Madoff Talks: Uncovering the Truth of the Most Notorious Ponzi Scheme in History, according to Amazon. Because they haven't told me exactly. Amazon says it's coming out April twenty seventh of next year, but I do not have that date myself yet. And it was 600 pages, which they've cut down to 400 as of now, which they had, they had me cut down to 400. They've, they feel they've been incredibly generous. They, they doubled the maximum length of the book that they would allow uh, because, I, you know, one of the things I'm telling in this story is the systemic failure. And by that, I mean the SEC, the SIPC that was supposed to protect investors from losses, the feeder funds we just talked about, JP Morgan, the bank, all of that failed. So that's why the book is going to be long. I think you'll find it a fascinating book because the way I put it together, for instance, the failure of the SEC, they failed on five separate investigations, even investigating the same stuff they'd already cleared them on. I put that in the same chapter with the whistleblower. So Mm -hmm. it'll be fun to go back and forth between these guys who figured it out fairly quickly and no one would listen to, and these guys who missed five investigations starting from 1992. That's amazing. And actually, the SEC and other groups have had a track record on occasion when these giant scandals occur. No one did really well in 2008 financial crisis. There was a, there was a lot of writing on the wall then, and uh, especially the ratings agencies, and it goes on and on. So it sounds like incredible access, unique access that no one has gotten, and, and a story that's going to be really uh, I mean, I can't wait to uh, to read the book myself. And I thank you for kind of doing the work and making it happen. I know what it's like to do the research and write a book, and it ain't easy. It's like a marathon, too, because every time I think it's great, I got to either cut or whatever. I had what I thought were brilliant footnotes in the sense that there's a lot of financial jargon in here and a lot of things going on. And I couldn't put all that in the book because it would be too long. So I thought, you know, if a guy wants to know exactly um, what the split strike conversion strategy, he can go here and see the whole thing put together. I had to gun all those. It was just too much for them. On the other hand, I really appreciate the opportunity they've given me because when I started off, you're floundering because I'd never written a book before. And I had really no idea what I was doing. And by the time I was done, I'm pretty fluent in it now. I got to the point where maybe you have this, Sid, I'll be writing something and a word will come to my head that should fit in there that I didn't even know what it meant. I don't even know where it came from. I'd look it up and they said, holy cow, that's the exact word. So by the time I'm done, it's been a lot of fun. And I think there's a lot in this book that people don't know. Whether everybody's going to be sick of Madoff by then, I don't know. I suspect not because it's been some time now. And it's a type of story that uh, people just, people want to know. Right right from the start of the book, to put a plug in, we are right in Madoff's office. And we will watch him have what appears to be almost a nervous breakdown when he first when the thing finally falls apart, I got access to his secretary, who, by the way, gave me his entire calendars for the last several years and every contact information 
Uh, I have the phone number of everybody in the world. Some people I'm too afraid to call because I'll get killed who did the money, who did the money laundering from abroad. Wow. Jim, that's amazing. I want to ask you one last, one last question. And it's a question I like to wrap up the conversations on. And it's about advice, but it's a specific type of advice. It's advice to yourself as a young man. If you can go back in time to when you were, say, 21 years old, and you go find Jim Campbell, whatever he's doing, or playing on the football field, or who knows what, and you were to kind of lean over and say, you know, Jim, if there's one thing you want to know about life, if there's one bit of information you want to think about, if there's one thing you want to avoid doing, uh, what would that What would that be? What would that advice be to your own 21-year-old? You know, I've come to believe, because of where I've ended up, that you must find your passion and follow it. And that may seem obvious, but especially if you've been to the kind of schools I've been to, there's a track where you're told to do X, Y, and Z. Your parents expect you to do this. You go down this path, you do this, that, and the other thing. You end up in midlife overpaid, and you can't figure out how to get to the real happiness, find your real passion. I would say that you're even better off not starting off with trying to find that. Go go make mistakes on somebody else's tab, some big company or whatever, but find out what it is that turns you on and how you think you can make an impact and then do whatever it takes uh, to get there. Get over a fear of failure, which I think that is a key thing. I don't think you can be free to be successful until you fail, particularly, again, if you come out of elite institutions where failure isn't even basically allowed. These poor kids today who start studying for their SATs in the freshman year of their high school, for instance, they're not allowed to make mistakes. One other thing I would take And this I got from Warren Buffett, which is choose your heroes wisely. I grew up thinking that JFK was my hero, right? And as I matured, I came to see politicians as highly flawed, narcissistic people, including JFK uh, was flawed. And I grew up in an affluent business community at a time when business wasn't popular. Looking back, I find a lot of these guys had tremendous ethics and tremendous values. Society, I don't know if it values integrity as much as it used to, it doesn't appear to. But, you know, find your path, find your passion, overcome fear of failure, be honest, and choose your heroes wisely. Warren Buffett ended up being my hero, my business hero. And here's a guy who takes the long vision, who doesn't cheat, does the opposite of Wall Street in terms of his investment strategy, and um, is one of the most brilliant people that I've ever met. You know, when I was at Tuck, the reputation of business schools, and it always is, is to be uh, short-term thinking. And I remember I'm 23, I was one of the youngest guys in the class walking out of a class and thinking, I'm being taught to think long-term here. This is like leading-edge stuff. I'm like amazed by it. It's exactly what should have happened. And I'll tell you right now, the culture at a place like Tuck values all those things, not to be you know, promoting Tuck, but all those values end up being in alignment with getting to where I wanted to go. And the saddest thing about Bernie Madoff is he could have been successful and was successful. His business that was honest was worth $3 billion at peak, and he lacked the moral fiber and courage to stay out of trouble. What a lesson, a set of lessons. Again, looking very much forward to that book in the spring. I think we're all looking forward to the spring for all sorts of reasons as well. And this will be one that uh, we may even be able to see people read on an airplane without any concerns, which will be a treat. Jim Campbell, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast. Absolutely great to talk to you as always and be well. Sid, it's totally my honor. You're a legend to talk and it's been, I'd love to have you on the show a couple of times and thanks for giving me this opportunity. And maybe I'm going to invite myself back when the book comes out. Well, that's easy enough to consider that done. (laughs) Thank you, my man. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.